Hello, and I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. Welcome to Best of the Rest, the show where we take a second look at movies that were technically poorly received upon release and challenge ourselves to only talk about the things we like and what the movie does well. My name is Chris Logan, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and seasonal caretaker of this podcast, Andrew Williams. You ready for this one, Andrew? I am indeed. Um, you know, I take my job as the seasonal caretaker of this podcast very seriously. So much so that for five months of the year, I go to Florida. <laughs> you should take it uh, very seriously. It's a hard position to fill. Something keeps happening with everyone else that we hire for this. Um, we're, we're really hoping that you stick it out, Andrew, and nothing goes horribly, horribly wrong. Would be a shame, wouldn't it? Andrew, what is your history with this movie? This 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 little film you've probably heard of called The Shining. I uh I'm obviously being sarcastic. It's a landmark of cinema. Everyone knows it, one of the most famous horror films of all time. But what's your personal history with it? Have you watched it often? When did you discover it? Did you have a Kubrick phase in your film? snob past life yeah i mean i think every every film snob has a has a kubrick phase and there i mean at being very honest there are still a great number of people who very rightly see stanley kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time because he made some pretty good movies um turns out yeah um, yeah he got a few of them uh yeah uh didn't really watch this as a kid necessarily just because you know it wasn't the kind of thing my parents were going to let me watch um obviously like when i was in college that was when like i was like oh the shining better check that one out so i'm sure i owned a dvd of it at some point did all that fun stuff but um so i'd seen it a lot mostly when i by the time i got to a young adult age and that was that was you know at that point i was like oh man what a classic um and uh then you realize that all these things you've been watching your whole life have been like parodying yes the shining like you think of the shining the shinning it's the shinning you want to get sued but um it's uh you know so you see all those things and you realize that like you know just within all these things there's this like endless kind of joke of parodying the shining so i suddenly everything crystallized so since then i've gone back to it a couple of times i actually did see it at alamo in houston back when they still were on mason road uh many many years ago before i left houston and uh it was, uh, you know, just cool to see it on the big screen. Um, gone back and rewatched it a few times, especially now that the 4K uh, is out there. Just wanted to see how that looked. and It looks great. It looks... It looks great. I, but, uh, so obviously, I, watched it a bunch. No, I wouldn't say it's, like, been a formative part of my life or anything. But, you know, definitely have given it its, given it its time of day to um, appreciate. Yeah, I... I I honestly I think I saw it beginning to end once before this week. I'd never really I've seen a few Stanley Kubrick movies, but it's definitely like just eating my vegetables. I was like, I know he's a big deal, he's got this legacy, let's check this out. And they range from like just not for me to uh to 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 I get it, but it's not it's not working for me. Um 
I think Full Metal Jacket was maybe the only one that I really connected with on first watch. But uh, what a <laughs> that's that's like a that's like a that's like a the, the peak film snob answer there, Chris. Um, you think so? I don't know. I mean, I think. <sighs> 2001 and A Clockwork Orange would have been way worse answers for me to say that about. You know, the first time I watched... Okay, all right. 2001, I'm not willing to give you, because I think 2001 is genuinely, like, a sci-fi classic. Clockwork Orange, I'll definitely give you. Anytime somebody lists Clockwork Orange as, like, one of their favorite movies, I'm always just like, all right, you're just checking all the boxes here, aren't you? (laughs) Uh, I mean, hashtag PP, we'll talk about a filmography more later. Like, I didn't even finish A Clockwork Orange. That's just... I I knew pretty early on. Yeah, no, this isn't for me. Um, it's not not my thing anyway I did watch The Shining and like you I was like oh I know all these references like I've seen every scene of this reference this carpet the sisters in the hallway the big wheel the breaking through the door Uh, I I knew here's Johnny was from The Shining and like if you hear that now it's probably a reference to The Shining and it wasn't until years later I realize it's in itself a reference to Johnny Carson. You know, I, I'm not yep. old enough to have grown up with Johnny Carson, so I, I didn't know that's what the reference was. I was very confused that his name was Jack because he clearly introduces himself as Johnny in the famous scene. Uh, but those, those, yeah, you know all the touchstones before you see the actual <laughs> movie. And um, yeah, that first watch, I just, I didn't really connect with it. And I'll tell you what my big hangup was, Andrew. It's that. It's it's real specific. It's at the end of this movie. Spoilers, I guess. Hopefully you've seen it. Zooms in on this picture in the hotel of the staff from the 1920s. And Jack Torrance is in it. And that's like the closing shot. And it's like... <laughs> I was just like, F*** you, movie. What is this? This is dull. Like, what, what is this? To me, it felt like... Uh, I, I, I like ambiguity in filmmaking. When I feel like there's interesting path A and interesting path B, and let me chew on it. And which direction are we going? Or A, B, and C, or however many. But this felt to me like, I don't know, it'd be weird to show that at the end, right? And people try to figure it out. Like, it, it, it. I, I really you gotta hated, earn it. I really hated that. You it, gotta, you gotta earn it. You gotta, if you're gonna do something strange, at least try to make it sort of fit in with the thing that you've been doing and that was for you a step too far exactly it felt unearned that's a perfect yeah. way to put it and i'm look we're hashtag positivity podcast obviously we're here to talk about the things we like about this movie that's what we're gonna do and i've got to say upon this rewatch has been par for the course all month i like this movie more than i ever have before and i definitely found a lot to like and i've I will revisit that scene and that picture and i've sort of come to peace with it and it 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 sits all right with me. Uh, I did find something else in this movie that that really <laughs> bugged the hell out of me. I'll probably address that later too. But ultimately, yeah, a, a lot of positives, a lot of praise here, a lot of things to like. Uh, before I, <laughs> but before we continue on to the positives, though, I, I do want to say we talked about movie posters earlier this month, specifically when we're talking about the thing because the thing has one of the greatest movie posters of all time. If you called it the greatest, I wouldn't call you crazy. I think we both agree with that. We, I think we also agreed that Jaws is maybe the best movie poster. I mean, 70s and 80s are just, just prime time for movie posters. Uh, you know, like, I don't know if it's like, 
the image quality wasn't good enough to have a picture, so it was always like illustrated and like interesting artwork. At least that was is more often the case. <sighs> Andrew, hashtag PP. The Shining does not have a good poster. <laughs> Anywhere, ever. Like that original one with the, the yellow with the, the face and the T, it does nothing for me. It's so disconnected from the movie. It doesn't fill me with any feeling that translates to what I feel when I watch the movie. Not a fan of it. And then after that, they just start using just a still of Jack Nicholson in, in the door, which I, I never a fan of like, hey, here's a screen grab of our iconic scene that everyone knows. And we'll use that as a poster or DVD cover or whatever. So uh, I don't know why it's important for me to point this out, but uh, I'm not a fan of the movie poster for The Shining. I This is a movie where I don't at all have a problem with places like Mondo or um you know what have yeah let's give it another shot let's try it (laughs) doing like shining posters like i've never had an issue with shining posters just because there's no like like when i hear the thing i think of that poster with like the face and everything when i think of jaws i think of the shark swimming up like there are movie posters that very much like to me embody the movie and you know nailed it first try with the shining like the the go-to image in my head is like the the carpet is like the the visual that i kind of think of but like you don't want to do a poster that's just the carpet so that's been one that like i'm fine with people like all right we're gonna do some shining posters i was like all right all right you, we can do that that's you know because i i make these decisions so you know you can right, do right. that i'll allow it but, yeah but then like even last week i saw that somebody was releasing a new poster for the thing and i was just like guys come on like we've done this and i guess they're easy sells like i'm sure they do well almost every time it's like when alamo shows the princess bride they know it's gonna sell out like it's it's an easy layup but man be nice to see some other weird stuff (laughs) i agree andrew let's set the stage a little bit for this film we're talking about today the shining first released may 23rd of 1980 made on a budget of 19 million dollars at the box office it brings in 44 million dollars not a hit not a flop it makes an all right amount of money critically it is not well received uh mixed to negatives what you're seeing with historical reviews this is like every movie we're talking about this month just about it's it's notorious for its Initial reception being so poor, and then it turns around and becomes this iconic film. So Rotten Tomatoes will tell you it has a score of 83%, but that's based on many reevaluations and modern reviews. So of course, as I've been doing a month, I did a little deep dive to some historical reviews from the time. So here's an excerpt from the Chicago Reader. They say, Kubrick is after a cool, sunlit vision of hell. Born in the bosom of the nuclear family, but his imagery, with its compulsive symmetry and brightness, is too banal to sustain interest, while the incredibly slack narrative line forestalls suspense. There's, I was seeing a lot of reviews that were like, <laughs> this is so weird to say, like how he was obsessed with special effects and imagery. And by today's standards this is obviously such a mundane it's 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 a hotel it's just the interior of a hotel you know um but the steadicam was less than five years old so like all these tracking shots 
of Danny riding through the hallway are legitimately groundbreaking that we could have this smooth tracking shot around a corner. So reviewers are really like tapping into that of like, well, he's just too obsessed with his toys and not paying attention to anything else, uh, which is wild. We look at how much we've dissected this movie to death and there's been papers written about it, examinations, but at the time they're like, eh, there's nothing below the surface here. Uh, it's always wild to see things like that. Cause like, I feel like, I will admit, I think there are movies where they got the steady cam and they did kind of just do weird stuff with it. Like Star Trek, the motion picture always comes to mind, like the very first Star Trek movie, because I feel like that movie is like half tracking shots of the Enterprise. And like they finally were like, oh, man, we can like do a slow pan of the Enterprise, you know, up close. We can use the models. We can make it look real cool and real fancy. And I'm always just kind of like, man, that is all you did it is a notoriously uneventful movie so i think right like it's literally so i think there are definitely movies where the idea of the uh tracking shot got overused or was put the focus on versus um kind of allowing the movie to breathe and but in this case it seems odd for that to be the go-to comparison it's been wild going back to some of these movies and just reading these like, you know, contemporary reviews and being like, wow, like it, it really just tells you that, you know, time is almost kind to all things. Well, apparently people will come around on almost everything. <laughs> uh, a review from Variety said, with everything to work with, director Stanley Kubrick has teamed with Jumpy Jack Nicholson to destroy all that was so terrifying about Stephen King's bestseller. The crazier Nicholson gets, the more idiotic he looks. And then, Andrew, they say something about Shelley Duvall I'm not even going to repeat on this podcast, uh, which is there's a whole can of worms there to talk about. But the other thing, the other negative I keep seeing, along with like Kubrick's too obsessed with the visuals and his toys, is comparisons to the source material. And if there's any lasting criticism of this movie, despite it becoming like a, you know, classic in its own right. It is always in reference to Stephen King's book, the changes that are made, which are, I mean, you're going to be able to talk to it more than me because I haven't read the book, but from everything I read about it, there's pretty drastic changes. Uh, yeah, and you could argue that that criticism in itself is, it's a tough one. And I'll admit that it's a tough one because, you know, there are people that will be like, well, you have to judge your work on its own merits. And it's like, okay, but like, how many people do you know that are really upset Master Chief takes his helmet off in the Halo show? And people will be like, yeah, well, we hate it because for a lot of other reasons. I was like, yeah, but you keep mentioning the helmet thing. And it's like, at a certain point, I think it is fair. Like, Okay, I've, I've got to check the tape. When we talked about Judge Dredd, I'm curious if you brought up a complaint about Sylvester Stallone taking the helmet off, Andrew. Was that a problem for you? Well, it's because that was an adaptation, and that's a certain. That's the point. If, if don't try to trap me here, <laughs> um, but um, it's uh, my point is simply that there are people who will say you need to judge a judge your work on, on its own merits, and basically be like, okay, you need to pitch everything you know about it. But at the same time, if that's the case, why did you adapt something? You know, if if you're looking to adapt material. And you take that material so far off course that it's essentially something else just in the dressing of yeah. whatever. If, if your character you know, is inherently not funny and Batman doesn't exist, how is it the Joker? 
Exactly. You know, what what are you doing? You know, it just feels like you're wasting my time. But um as you casually make a billion dollars <laughs> at the box office. Um Jesus. Um but uh so I think and I think what eggs this on a little bit more. Eggs the right word there. But I think what contributed very heavily to that was Stephen King's own criticism of it. Now, The Shining was a very personal book for him. It was about alcoholism and his struggles with it. Um, and I think seeing that struggle take a back seat, he felt, to the story that the movie ended up telling, I think, you know, as Michael Jordan once said, and I took that person. <laughs> um, he didn't really like those changes. He is not a fan of Nicholson's casting. Um, and the thing is, is if you frame all of that within the context of comparisons to the book, I don't think it's any of it's incorrect. I think you're, you're, but the question simply becomes, is it its own work? Is it an adaptation? I mean, you still have plenty of people that still view The Shining as one of the greatest horror films of all time. Plenty of people reference it, like Jordan Peele on Key and Peele. There's, there's literal Shining references on Key and Peele, which is like a comedy sketch show. Like it's that kind of pervasive. Pervasive is not the right word either. But like it worms its way in like that to where it's just this part of the cultural lexicon at this point. Um, but I think Stephen King not liking it is a huge part of why the adaptation conversation is still such a big part of it. Whereas it's not for things that depart so much more you know there are plenty of other adaptations that depart very heavily from the source and yet we're not still having conversations about sure, those yeah and it's interesting to see the shining is kind of one of those examples where it does get brought up you know you know we can talk about i know what you did last summer nothing like that book but you know part of that's the quality of the final product part of that's the relative popularity of the book it was based off of and a variety of other things but this one kind of persists, and I think Stephen King himself is a big part of that. But it definitely created a lot of controversy, not controversy, but a lot of criticisms at the time where people felt like a lot of what made the book work was just missing from the final product, and that was seemingly backed up by the author himself. So I think that certainly heavily contributes to why that's such a big part of the conversation. This movie is written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, obviously adapted from the novel, as we mentioned, but Stanley Kubrick was often a writer, a co-writer on his works, but Diane Johnson is interesting because she is an author in her own right, and this is one of the few, if not the only, film credit, screenwriting credit she actually has, so interesting combination uh, for him to bring in another author <laughs> to help adapt this story. But uh, clearly, she helped kind of mold this into its new direction. Yeah, it's it's an interesting choice because she's had her own books get adapted into films. Uh, and so it's got to be a heck of a thing coming in to, uh, to do this one. And uh, it is... Um, it's actually interesting because Stanley Kubrick was sent proofs of what would become the novel. Like, the novel wasn't even technically published when he was, like, looking at... Uh, what was going to happen here and what they were going to do. Um, King was already kind of famous because of the success of Carrie. Um, Kubrick had kind of been, you know, thinking about doing a horror film for a while, especially after Barry Lyndon kind of failed at the box office. Uh, he also passed on The Exorcist, um, which obviously William Friedkin directed that, and it became one of the you know highest grossing horror films of all time, if not just films of all time. Um, and so, uh, 
he actually rejects an earlier draft by King himself uh, because it was too literal in its adaptation. Um, King was just kind of like, or Kubrick was just kind of like, no, you adapted your novel too well. Uh, it's too it's too straight um and so uh it's a tough one because she also didn't sound like she was the biggest fan of the original novel itself um it and and kubrick had mentioned something about kind of not really being a big fan of ghost stories which why would you do this then but um (laughs) it very much felt like they saw I don't know what a great comparison would be, but it feels like they read the original script and just took very or original manuscripts of the book and just took very different ideas on what the focus should be uh, versus what the book focuses on. It kind of very much feels like, uh, you know, King writes the book, comes up with these concepts, but then Kubrick and collaborating with uh, Diane Johnson kind of saw a kind of different way to take it. And obviously, it was hugely successful, but that's definitely what caused some friction uh, in our uh, in the relationship between Kubrick and King, for sure. As we've been mentioning, this movie is directed by Stanley Kubrick, one of the most famous and well-regarded filmmakers, directors of all time. And I, I think you said it best earlier, Andrew. He made some pretty good movies. <laughs> That's that's a few. That's kind of just where I land with Stanley Kubrick. Like, yeah, I can, I I like some of them. I can respect most of them. Um, not. I just don't feel like I'm the target audience for most of them. That's all. Uh, but you just can't deny this. Not an eyes wide shut guy. I'm not. Believe it or not. Um, don't worry, nobody. Is. You just you just can't deny this run though. Uh, before this comes out, he does Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, 2001, and A Clockwork Orange, all back to back to back to back. And I've already shared my thoughts on some of those movies. They're, they're not really all for me, especially A Clockwork Orange, but you just can't deny I like, the impact. I like how you leave out, I love how you leave out what he does before Lolita, which was Spartacus, which was seen as one of the greatest like historical epics of all time when it came out. So... You know, you're okay, looking okay, at not then it's just even like, greater than what I <laughs> it's said. It's even greater. I don't like, know, but maybe this, maybe I I could be wrong about this, but I feel like the auteur of Stanley Kubrick starts with Lolita and really comes in with Doctor Strangelove, and I feel like he's more of a traditional director before that. Maybe it's a wrong take. I'm no Stanley Kubrick expert, but that's that's kind of why I singled out that run, but. I mean, fair enough. I mean, Spartacus well regarded. So yeah, throw that into his, his I mean, crazy. It's run an interesting there. career because even before that is the killing and paths of glory, which are also both pretty highly regarded. Kubrick might genuinely be one of those filmmakers that doesn't like technically uh, eyes wide shut's pretty rough for everybody. But um like he has a pretty big run there where it's like just classic after classic after classic. Like it's it's one of the it's funny, I was I was seeing a video today and the 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 it was somebody responding to the notion. Somebody pointed out they were looking at Christopher Nolan's filmography. And uh, let me look at it real quick to see what five movies. But they were trying to say that there was a five film run of Nolan's that was the best five film run of any director ever. And I think they said it was Dark Knight, Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dunkirk. 
Andrew, and sorry, I don't want to step on your point here, but Dark Knight Rises is not part of any greatest five run ever. What are Chris, we- I was going to say that's one of the dumbest <laughs> things I've ever heard anyone say. Um, Honestly, it's-, it's not until you listed the movies. Like, I, I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan. I think he's in his ability to be consistent with like the quality of film. And they're all reaching a wide audience is pretty incredible and almost unparalleled. So, like, it's not crazy to say he has a great five movie run, but The Dark Knight Rises is not part of it. I mean, Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight. There's, there's, there's your run, uh, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Insomnia, and even Insomnia, people will still kind of point to that and be like, it's not on par with a lot of the other stuff that he's done. Anyway, no, by no means to say that anything he's done is bad by any means, but like. It was one of those things where you saw somebody say it, and it the only thought in my head was watch more movies. I mean, like yeah. there's so yeah. many, there's so many film takes I hear, whether it's you know Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, wherever, where the only thought that keeps running through my head is watch more movies. There was a debate; it was two guys. It was those two guys that are like ardent MCU defenders, but they they were doing like the. There was like your favorite, the best horror franchises of all time. And one guy said The Conjuring Universe, and one guy said Saw. And I was like, I need you guys to watch more movies. And I need you guys to watch more movies. <laughs> just just the, the hyperbole is what kills me. Like, with right. a modern filmmaker still making movies, uh, I mean, his career is only 25 years old. That's really not long enough not to be. Old. Why are we saying all time? Why are you trying to force this huge pedestal? Just just praise the movies. Hey, it's a great run. He's I'm excited to see what he does next. But like to suddenly say that um Dark Knight Rises is, is ten years old, a little over. A movie that came out ten years ago was part of the greatest run Film of all run time. Run of all like, time. Yeah. No. Let let the cookies cool, like, okay? Stanley Kubrick made movies for almost fifty years. Like he made his Fear and Desire comes out in fifty two. He has a couple of documentary shorts before that. And Eyes Wide Shut comes out in 99. That is, that is 50 years making movies. And like Alfred Hitchcock, like people, you know, you want to talk about great film runs of all time. Like Alfred Hitchcock's run in the 60s is insane. Like it's absolutely ridiculous that like, you know, you've got, what is that run? It's literally Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds in a row. That's, that's like insane. those four in a row. That's absolutely nuts that that man, and that's not even including stuff like Rear Window, which came out two years before that, or any of his kind of later masterpieces, or any of that, like Strangers on Train. Like, he's got masterpieces throughout his whole career, but then literally it's Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds in a row. That's crazy. Like, I, if you want to say that's the best four film run in a row, I'm not going to fight you on that. Absolutely not. But Kubrick has. A extremely good run, and but I'm uh, sorry, that's <laughs> way far off the point. But just that people <laughs> watch more movies, especially if you're going to start a film related anything, please watch as many movies as possible. Like, don't just watch new stuff. Do like you know, it's it's just also this idea that like you know, if it's more than 25 years old, it's old, and therefore it can't be in a conversation. That's like a weird trend I sort of see too. Where like they're talking about movies, they all have to be like more recent. Uh, and I guess the idea is that you know people lose interest if it's too old and i'm like well i don't care man like it's you gotta you gotta watch more movies like it's if you're gonna talk about movies you need to have seen some um and uh 
But Stanley Kubrick's run, getting back to the point, it, it you could pick almost any, but like you, you could pick any bit of it, but just the the absolute, yeah, like I said, it's Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, two thousand one, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining. If into Full Metal Jacket, like, like the only weird one that people kind of don't know in there is Barry Lyndon usually, and it's still extremely well received critically. It just didn't really do well box office wise. So like. And then you t- toss in Spartacus, Pass the Glory, and The Killing beforehand. It's a film noir, an anti-war film, and then, you know, a historical epic. Like, Stanley Kubrick did everything. Like, that's yeah. the other thing people really don't talk about enough. Yeah. Like, he has this insane run of movies, but you've got hard sci-fi, you've got satire, you've got anti-war, you've got historical epics, you've got Lolita, which is probably less said about that the better at this day and age. You got Full Metal Jacket, which is a whole different kind of war film. You've got The Shining, which is horror. Like, you've got everything. Like, every single type of film is mixed in with what he did. He's like the Coen brothers, but one man. Yeah. Yeah. No brother. (laughs) Probably killed him. But, you know, who knows? Um, But it's Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I think, I think we said it all, Andrew. I think that covers it. Um. Let's uh let's jump into this movie. We we got we got a big movie to talk about here. Uh The Shining. Let's break it down. You ready? Yeah. Aspiring writer Jack Torrance has taken a new job at the Overlook Hotel. While the hotel is closed for the winter season, Jack and his family will live on the premises to keep an eye on things. Jack's enthusiasm for his chance to finally write in peace gradually turns to frustration and anger, which he begins to direct at his wife. Once Jack begins seeing phantoms at the hotel and their son Danny is visited by the ghosts of children that were murdered in the building, it becomes clear that something sinister in the hotel has taken hold. When Jack finally snaps and tries to murder his wife, Wendy, with an axe, she and Danny desperately try to escape and contact anyone that can help. Also, Danny and the hotel cook are psychic. I don't know where to work that in, but that's a big <laughs> plot thread in this movie. <laughs> they, they, they have psychic abilities. They can read thoughts, project thoughts, read others' thoughts communicate with uh with ghosts it's it's you know the the shining is what we call it andrew they have they have the shine yeah that's like you said we were were talking a little bit before and you were like one of these concepts would have been good but the movie rolls with both of them and uh it's uh it's pretty wild um and uh yeah i mean the classic american story of isolating yourself in a cabin in the mountains, getting snowed in and then going crazy. It's, it's a tale as old as time, or at least as old as 1977. Um, exactly. Like the idea of being psychic, but that also including this ability to, to communicate, visit, see, feel ghosts or, or, you know, the, the, the things they leave behind as they kind of ominously say here, like, that's that's a really cool concept. Imagine this family in this hotel, but their son is connecting with a dark past. That's that's a cool story. Or imagine the dad getting 
cabin fever going insane and they are trapped in there with their greatest fear come to life. That's a cool story. And you mesh those together. You got to you got to crazy yeah, crazy stew cooking here. Um and you could argue make it work twice. I mean you could argue the book works, the film works, and they do enough different that they have intertwined these two stories in satisfying ways it, it, you know different from one another. Um it's crazy. It's interesting. We're going to talk about it. The story, I think, happens with the positives. But first, of course, as we always do, we're going to talk about the cast of this film, starting with the high point, best casting, best performance of the movie. Because every episode, we recognize one person who goes so far above and beyond the call of duty that they actually elevate the quality of the entire film with their performance. And we recognize that person by giving them the Mark Strong Award. So, Andrew, very interesting to see where you go with this. Who is getting your Mark Strong Award? For The Shining. Scatman Crothers. I want it um, to be Scatman uh, Crothers so bad. I love <laughs> that, man. I love that performance. I know that's not your real answer, but damn it. Micro Mark Strong Award to him for, one, having a cool name, and two, just being so damn likable. Uh, he's he's just not in the movie enough for me. Yeah. Like If he had maybe five more minutes of screen time, I think I would definitely have to give it to... Scatman Crothers, because in the scenes he's in, he's so good. We'll talk more about Scatman Crothers. Yeah, we'll get to it. I, I didn't have enough point. I, uh, this is difficult, because I feel like there's an obvious answer. Obviously, I feel like everybody just defaults to the lead to, to Nicholson, because he's, you know, thing. <sighs> All right. I, and I'm not just doing this as like a weird consolation thing. Do you don't have to like just, just praise it. Andy. I am, I am, it. though. I am. I am going to praise it, but I want to clarify here that like, we did. We touched on it earlier. Her performance, not well liked at the time of this film's release. Yes. Um, especially when people were comparing her to the Wendy Torrance of the book. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stories that came out in the aftermath, so much so that the Golden Razzies, which nominated her and Kubrick for this, rescinded the nomination they gave her in 2022. Yeah, in 2022. Out get out of here. It was all tied into the that, PR There was a big, I think... Yeah, there's there was yeah they were they were trying to recover from some stuff there, but I think within the context of this film, she gives an extremely good performance because we've talked about this a little bit more, and we'll talk about it more when we talk about Jack Nicholson, which is coming eventually. Um, but there's an uneasiness that is in this whole movie from the start, essentially that the mo- that the book doesn't necessarily do the same way. There's this sense that she's always walking on eggshells, that she's always kind of trying to say and do the right thing. And as she sees things start to unravel, you can't help but just feel awful for this character because she's basically helpless. She she's like she has put herself into the situation thinking that it was going to be helpful for her family, help them finally move forward and heal, and it has all gone terribly wrong. And I think the hysteria and the almost mania that Shelley Duvall brings to this role illustrates that perfectly. Um, She's not, um, you know, you could say that, well, she's not trying to fight back, but she is, but she's just not, she can't oppose Jack Nicholson. She can't, she can't stand up to him and she's trying. And so you're like, oh, well, she's stumbling up the stairs with the bat when she could just be hitting him. It's like, and she does hit him. She knocks him down the steps and then she runs away, which is awesome. It's great. Then she drags him to a pantry and she locks him in it. 
Like, you know. She does everything within her power. Yeah, I think that's... She's doing everything that she can while she is still trying to hold it together, while she is in hysterics over trying to make sure her and her son get out of this, and is just terrified. This whole time she's terrified, and she's on the verge of collapsing. And she does collapse a couple of times, but she pulls herself back up, and she gets out of there with much help from Danny. Don't misunderstand me. He has his role to play here as well. But I think what she's doing here is perfect for the story this movie is telling of her kind of doing that slow realization that this is not going to go the way she wants it to. It's not going to go the way any of them want it to. You can take Jack Nicholson's motivations and treat them as you will, but it's not going that way. There's that one scene where you can, where it's like she comes and checks on him and that's when like he's verbally abusive. And that's the point where you're like, this has changed. And you know, whether you decide he's under the influence of the hotel by that point or not, she knows at that point it's over. And at that point, it's survival. And I think she does a fantastic job on every front there. I think Shelley Duvall is fantastic here. Um, obviously, there are a lot of very unsettling stories about her treatment on set by Kubrick. His incessant demand for doing takes. Some of these scenes apparently had more than 100 takes um, to the point that it was genuinely kind of debilitating uh, for some of the actors, primarily Shelley Duvall. And um, she has some kind words to say about him more recently. You know, she did say some nice things about him, so apparently wasn't all bad. Um, but it was not great. And I think what she's doing here is perfect for this performance in this role in this story. And is it the Wendy Torrance of the book? No, but this isn't the book. And uh, I think she's doing a fantastic job here at portraying the exact kind of like this is. How would anybody else react in a situation like this? We all love to think that, like, you know, in a situation like life or death, we'd all have that, like, action hero response. Yeah, I mean. Where we'd all, like, stand up the, and, like, be superheroes, basically. But that's not reality. I mean, look at this woman. She's 85 pounds soaking wet against a maniac with an axe. Like, come on. Uh, Even without the axe. He's just he's just terrifying. Yeah, I and, mean, just at a base level, I mean, like, domestic abuse is a huge theme of this movie. Like the physical power that husbands exert anyway there's there's a lot to unpack there i i I would reject any criticism that's going to be like she could have done more or victim blaming nonsense i want to get to her performance like you're talking about like i totally worthy of the mark strong award i think this is a great pick andrew like you said a lot of people are going to go to jack nicholson but you can't She's the perfect dance partner because, yeah, Jack Nicholson is unhinged and crazy, but she is like the palette that he gets to paint on. Like she is the reaction like him just terrorizing an empty hotel is not scary. But having someone express the hysterics as well as she does and have that fear uh, for her life that she's lost her husband, like that he is. It really is her greatest fear come to life. It's not so much about her husband being possessed by whatever, but like, oh, he's finally going to kill me after we can imagine he's done other physical things to her before. Like, there's there's layers to the fear, um, and she plays it all so well. And it it's not even just the second half of the movie where she's just crying, sobbing constantly, but I I love her from the first... She's talking to the doctor at the beginning of this movie that's looking at Danny. She tells a story about 
how Jack came home. He had been drinking and it, it was an accident. He didn't mean to do it, but you know, he tried to pick up Danny, he pulled too hard, pulled his shoulder out of socket. She's just laying up all these excuses because like, she's like, oh, I know how this is going to sound, but really he's a good guy. He didn't mean it. He's working on it. Just It's the classic denial. It's like the classic yes, excuses, yes. everything. It's that classic scene where like just going through, she's like, no, it's, you know, it was a one-time thing. He's not drank since. That means he's fine. You know, he's, he's, you know, it means that we're getting better. You can tell she's trying to convince herself as much as she's trying to convince this doctor. Exactly. She's, you know, maybe he is doing for the better, but right now you're you're five months. So that's nothing. That's, you know, and that's not to, that's not to say that five months of progress is not progress. It is, but it does not undo the damage of before. And it doesn't by any means mean that you're necessarily in a new status quo. Yeah. Um, And so, again, if anybody out there is struggling and you're five months in, it's a massive achievement. Don't want to undersell that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that, you know, five months sober is, you know, nothing. But, but you're not cured. You're not free and clear. It's not all forgiven. Cured. Yeah. Um, And th- hopefully none of you are headed to haunted hotels that will play against your, uh, your issues. And not concerns. good for sobriety. Um, don't do it. It's not. Apparently it's not. Um, Unless they're friendly ghosts, which they're not. Um, but um, so anyway, I I completely agree. Everything you're saying, I think she plays this role perfectly. It's just fantastic. I think Shelley Duvall is fantastic here. And 10 out of 10. Uh, no notes. I, 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 we're hashtag positivity podcast. I'm not going to dwell. I said no much, notes, Chris. <laughs> you brought this up. Um, I just want to make sure people listening know that. Okay, we talked about Stanley Kubrick already. One thing that kind of makes my skin crawl, not just Stanley Kubrick, but in a rule, in general with, with filmmakers or artists that people really love is they start talking about their genius, the mystery of their genius. And I don't know exactly what it means. It's got to mean something because he's a genius and everything he does is so meaningful and he's so exacting and a perfectionist. And that's why he does so many takes. It's not just that he worked these actors to the bone being relentless with all the takes that they do. It's not just getting the perfect shot. It was about psychological terror on the actors and believing that he could get a better performance by affecting them on a personal, real level. And that is not okay that is abuse and this applies to all the actors like you know jag nicholson everyone's talking about they they all felt this pressure but it was so much greater on her and it it was not purposely not giving her good notes never saying she did a good job making her feel crappy about herself telling the crew not to console her or talk to her make her feel isolated in real life so that he could get the performance. And that is garbage. And it's a big reason it's, why I was kind of hesitant to really praise Stanley Kubrick earlier. I respect, I like a lot of his movies, but not a huge fan of what this guy was doing on set. To say I, the least. I was going to say, it's fucked up. Like, censor it if you have to. That's what it is. It's truly messed up. It's, 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 it's far beyond. Because like you said, it's talking about the performance. At, at the end of the day, it's a man trying to exert control over others. And in this case, a particularly, a partic- particularly, of course, the woman on his set, who was pretty much the only woman in this movie, um, and like I said, telling cast and crew to purposely isolate her, it's messed up. 
And if all you're going to say at the end of the day is, I wanted the perfect performance, cool. I'm going to say you're a douche because that's what you are. You're far beyond that. Like, that's messed up. And there are plenty of directors of the, the cult, whatever you want, the, the new age of the 70s, the golden age of before, you know, Alfred Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren on the birds. There's plenty of stories there as well um, of these things that, you know, it was these instances where they decided that the pursuit of the perfect performance took precedence over common decency, yeah. like just like yeah. literally treating people as humans. And that's just messed up. And we uh, have seemingly mostly moved beyond practices like this. You hear a couple of stories here and there, but it's usually part of a larger pattern of behavior. Being now, exposed now method actors just of, do it to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you know, there's, there's, you know, I've, I've said it before on the show, I'm sure, but Brian Cox's take on method acting, just act. Yep. Like just, just act. That's all you need to yeah. do. Just direct. Um, so you've got good at just direct, just direct. let your actors act. just direct use your hands um <laughs> but, oh that's not a good reference to make um but uh anyway um so yes i i will accept that stanley kubrick has made a lot of movies that are seen as classics but there's a treatment of his actors that underlines and at this point in my enjoyment of his filmography definitely changes my perception and my enjoyment of these films um and it is you know people will say that films are a collaborative medium uh, to not watch them because of one person is is not fair and if that's your stance completely respect it um other people don't feel the same and i think that's completely respectable as well hashtag pp um shelly devall's great interesting person very cool gives an excellent performance and she deserves the credit for that excellent performance and I'm glad you gave that Mark Strong Award, Andrew. It's well deserved. Uh, I I gotta say though, I'm just I'm going with the obvious pick, and I'm giving Jack Nicholson my Mark Strong Award for his performance as Jack Torrance. Um, I, I it's it's one of it's maybe his most well known role at the end of the day. I mean, the dude has made classic after classic and has tons of huge movies and iconic roles, but I, this might be the first one people go to, and I think. It's for good reason. We'll we'll talk about, you know, there's certainly criticisms of it. Stephen King wasn't a fan of it and what they decided to go with here, but I it works. It it works for me. I I unhinged Jack Nicholson is just it's insane. <laughs> it is no one else can do this. Uh the the second half of this movie where he's just truly lost it is just you know, this is going to sound very weird. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure where I was going to bring this up in the episode, but whenever he loses it, especially like in the big, whatever that room is, the big lobby where he's writing and she sees the paper and he walks up and there's that turn and he's chasing her around the room and then up the stairs and he's like mocking the things that she says and he's just lost it. I, I get such strong Jim Carrey vibes there. Like there is like two degree separation between this unhinged Jack Torrance and Jim Carrey giving an over the top comedy performance. And it is terrifying when Jack Nicholson does it and hilarious when Jim Carrey does it. And I don't know what this means. I don't know what deeper thing I'm getting at here, but I, I don't know. Jack Nicholson can just like, 
he's a movie star and a legend, but he can, I feel like he has no ego and no shame, whatever. He really dives into a performance and it's, it's a hallmark of his entire career. Like, like the departed, that's maybe like his last great, great performance. Right. There's that scene where he talks about, you know, he has a rat and he makes the rat face and he just looks insane. And it's like, dude, you're, you're, you're a living legend and you just look ridiculous. But like that energy. And again, that, that, I don't know what to call it, that it's, it's just, just no pretense about himself somehow in the performance. The it is je ne sais quoi, as it were. That's, that's, that's exactly right. That's why I can't find the word. Cause there's no word for it. Andrew, he, he has that X factor. He was born to be a movie star and whatever he just like lets loose. It's just, it's unlike what anyone else can do. It's, it's really special. And I think this movie is an example of it. And we'll, we'll examine like the first half of this movie and what it means and before he's unhinged and how it differs from the book. I or will recognize all that, but I just I can't deny the performance at the end of the day. I don't think this is controversial to say he's my Mark Strong Award winner. Not at all. Did you know, Chris, that Jack Nicholson is in a horror film directed by Roger Corman with Boris Karloff? I I did not know that. It is this man's career is insane. He starts in like the late fifties. I mean, he's in like movies that are like, they're not, I in love, public I, I domain, just want to but... read you. I just want to read you this. The film stars Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson, the latter of whom plays a French officer who is seduced by a woman who is also a shape-shifting devil. So I'm just telling you, this is the greatest movie. It sounds movie. awesome. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, he, he does. He's it's called the terror folks. Um, he really, st- he's in like uh, such oddball things and low budget things. And uh, the original this is 63 to be fair. So this is early on. It's directed by Roger Corman, but apparently has uncredited direction from Francis Ford Coppola and Jack Nicholson himself. So to be on a that real set. wild thing. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. But it's also wild to me. And I forget this, that Jack Nicholson did write a lot of stuff like I, I like you know you read he reaches that point where like he's just acting and occasionally directing he directs a couple of things but you know he's a writer on thunder island and he's a writer on flight to fury and then he's a writer on riding the whirlwind and the trip and the monkeys movie head which i've mentioned before i think on this show that he's literally just a writer on that movie he has a cameo in it but he's just a writer on it and that's and then he does easy rider the next year which i think is probably um that's no. where like the, the movie star yeah that's starts, where like right? yeah right. easy writer is where like and then one flew over the cuckoo's nest is probably like when he really like becomes jack Nicholson. i mean um that's my favorite performance it's just andrew one flew over the cuckoo's nest hot take it's a pretty good movie <laughs> it's it's oh, uh, yeah. the hottest <laughs> of takes um <laughs> i i can i can never sit here and tell you like this is the greatest movie of all time, hands down. But there's a select few movies that I would say, yeah, that's in the running. Uh, Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock, tell me that's the greatest movie of all time. I don't call you crazy. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is in that conversation for me. It's just absolutely perfect. One of the best movies ever made. Yeah. No notes. Um, He has a big involvement with, uh, um, with kind of this early group of uh that bob rafelson was in bb bbs productions with five easy pieces king of marvin garden stuff like that he's involved with that whole group so just has this so he's got this whole he's got like these different phases of his career but there's definitely a point where like 
he just kind of becomes Jack Nicholson and like being Jack Nicholson is kind of like what he's known for. Sure. It's kind of like Al Pacino. Like Al Pacino is just kind of at this point where he's Al Pacino. Yeah. Like that's just all he is. Like it's not like he has anything to prove. But uh, yeah, so like it, it's a wild career. He hasn't acted in a very long time uh, since 2010. The Departed one of his last movies and like it's easy to say it's like probably his last great role but yeah it was like his third from last movie and like his last like serious kind of drama role he does two kind of you know buddy comedy type things after that um but just an insane career but yeah i mean like you can't deny his performance here now that's been the subject of some of the not controversy necessarily but some of the disagreement criticism is that like with criticism is that when you see jack nicholson as jack torrance you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're not really believing. So this, when people talk about adaptations, this is one of the big things. Jack Torrance in the book still has the same like troubled past, but there's this genuine presentation as a likable guy who is actually trying to sort of atone for his mistakes, move forward, and actually try to be a better person. You never get that vibe with Jack Nicholson to me. You, you never really do. But that's kind of how the movie plays it. The movie doesn't play him as this likable guy kind of presenting himself as like slowly succumbing to madness. This is a guy that's kind of maybe denying the kind of person he is putting out a mask as we've described it. And then the, and then the events of the hotel just kind of strip the mask away and then obviously drive him to a much darker place than even he was at. So there's this very, very clear issue that people have with Jack Torrance and presentation between the both of the book and the movie. And even in the book, Jack is present, but Danny is also a much stronger presence. Um, So the movie obviously kind of hones in on Jack for the most part to kind of make him your cipher as you're kind of watching this film. You're seeing most of it through Jack's experience. And uh, it is a still, that being said, it is a it's a powerhouse performance. It's one of Nicholson's best. I mean, like you said, he's had a bunch. Um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was about five years before this. Unrelated, I always forget how late this movie was made. It's made in 1980. For some reason, feels I like always saw this as like, yeah, it feels yeah. like an early to mid-70s yeah. movie. Like, it feels like it came out around the same time One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest came out, but it's 1980. Very weird. Anyway, um, but like I said, this is a it's, a, it's a classic film. You know, Jack Nicholson is no stranger to iconic performances, even stuff like a... Even stuff like A Few Good Men, you know, you can't handle the truth. Like, it just, even when he shows up in those bit parts, he makes it important. He makes it iconic. And in this one where he's front and center, he makes the most of every single moment he's on screen. Um, And yeah, he crushes it. Can't deny this one at all. You ever dance with the devil, pale moonlight? Here's Johnny. The dude has some quotable lines in his movies. Yeah, his speech from Mars Attacks. Alum of the show, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Can't we all just just get along? along. <laughs> um, a little, a little head shake. Um, <laughs> the the hands that are little hand. Yeah, the hands. Yeah. Little. Uh, just the he says something and then the little. We are uh, Andrew. We're both doing such great hand acting. Like we are. We have such good Jack Nicholson <laughs> hands. Everyone listening, just just know that we are nailing. Can, the they can hear this, hand. right? <laughs> you hear the you hear the hands rubbing together through the mic, there, folks. Um, <laughs> There's really only other um, one other main star of this movie, and that is Danny Lloyd as Danny, uh, Danny Torrance. Danny Torrance. Um, <laughs> um, I. 
you know what I love about this? He, he gives a great performance. Obviously, like, it's an all-time, as far as child performances, just because of the legacy of this movie and how well-regarded it is, how much it's been seen. He retires two years after this, has a normal life. The dude's a biology professor now. I love to see it. That's my that's my favorite story of a child actor, is that they are no longer acting, and they've moved on. <laughs> like, that is... Because, like, the other side of that is usually tragic. Very rarely they transition sex- successfully to, to, like, a full career in acting, but I love to see someone that just just burned bright and then got out. You know what I mean? It's so strange too, because like it, it, there's been a DVD commentary. I don't remember who it was, but like they apparently stated that like Kubrick was able to film all of Danny's scenes without Danny realizing he was in a horror film. Like I have no idea how true this is. Like it's one of those stories that you probably just hear about, but like it's and so you contrast that with like how Shelley Duvall was treated. To where, like, he went out of his way to not just make sure that the kid didn't realize he was in a horror film, but, like, you know, it's just, again, you're seeing contrast and treatment there. Yeah. But Danny is obviously a fairly minor part of this film. Um, I mean, they did not, is he a minor part not, of this movie? Not minor. He's, play, he's played kind of secondary to Jack Nicholson is more what I mean. Not minor. Minor is not the right word. But um, they kind of... I mean, he is a minor part in this movie in that his character is only... You know, ten years it's old. Child. He's a minor. Um, um, so he plays the minor part in the movie. Plays the minor role. That's what I meant. <laughs> Clearly, what I meant, Chris. Um, anyway, but um, it, it's an interesting approach too. But you know, again, you see the care put into making sure that Danny got you know great performances, um, and wasn't really given to other people. Uh, fun fact: uh, Danny Lloyd was not brought back to play Danny Torrance in Doctor Sleep. Uh, that role went to Ian McGregor, but uh, he does have a cameo in the film uh, as a spectator at one of the baseball games, which is just really fun. I need to watch Doctor. Not Sleep. a fun movie by any means. <laughs> okay. Doctor Sleep. The scenes that the scenes that follow that baseball game are actually quite terrifying and quite horrifying. But um, it's I just they they kind of consulted him, brought him in, gave him like. I kind of brought him in on set, like said, let me have a cameo. So I think that was just cool. Mike Flanagan to do uh, Dr. Sleep. Yeah, we'll talk about Dr. Sleep a little bit more later. But yeah, I mean, he does a good job in this movie, I think. Like, I yeah, think he totally, does a totally. great job. Like, just a fantastic performance. Um, plays well off of everybody around him. Uh, another one who kind of really nails that kind of sense of like, we're just kind of pretending everything's all right. Like, there's scenes where he's with Jack Nicholson. Like, he clearly is very uncomfortable around his dad and for good reason um and it's well done and obviously danny lloyd playing a dual role here he not only plays danny but he does play tony as well totally different voice performance different physical performance so gotta give him the dual credit there um it's he's always really good at he's really good at just nailing these just these things that kids do which seems obvious because he is a kid i get it but like the thing where, like, his mom will ask him a question and he just keeps walking through the room and she's like, Danny? He's like, okay. Like, <laughs> this doesn't acknowledge that he just ignored her the first time. It's it's just oddly specific thing kids do, but the, it, I guess it gives him cre- credit to the writing, of course, as well for that. But he just, um, he's a cute kid, he's believable, and what more could you ask for in your, in your kid role? It works. Uh, Scatman Crothers, Andrew. Um, it's, uh, I love this guy. Uh, I, I only know him yeah. from two things. I know him from this and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, I think he plays uh, t- 
Tur- Turkle, Turkle, I think Turkle. Turkle's name, Turkle. character yeah. name is. Um, he comes in to see like the whole hospital wrecked of this party. He's like, oh, oh, come, oh, man. <laughs> literally hurt my throat just doing that. Um, <laughs> I, don't know how you do uh, I also know man, him. Uh, I also know him as uh, the original Jazz from Transformers. Uh, he was the original Autobot Jazz, uh, you know, a role that would be taken on by many, but in the original Transformers and Transformers the movie, um, he was the. Uh, voice of jazz, which means that in Transformers the movie, if I had a nickel for every famous actor that voiced somebody in that movie that would die not long or before it was released, I'd have two nickels. Okay. Okay. The other person obviously <laughs> being Orson Welles. <laughs> I, I think my favorite scene is probably when he's eating ice cream with Danny. And, you know, obviously he talks about the shine. He's so... Yeah good like talking to a kid in that friendly way but it's like it's talking down to him so he's treating him like with some respect i always appreciate that i mean i love that scene and i love you get this scene at him like at home in his room and he's just laying in bed watching tv wearing a robe and has these giant pictures of beautiful naked women on his wall i'm just like what a king when they cut to him just laying on the bed like flat watching tv i was like man you guys is that just me at home when i'm doing stuff by myself <laughs> just like laying flat staring at the screen with no expression on my face um man it's so many close-ups of faces in this movie though if you really want to get to know everybody's face in this movie it's a, there's no better movie to do that with um but yeah it's like that slow pan so like his face where he has the wide realization that something's wrong. I was like, yep. I remember the first time I watched this and that happened. I was like, oh, Scatman, you're not leaving this movie alive. Um, you're going to go do something. <laughs> like, like at that moment, I was like, you're going to go to that hotel and you're not going to leave, are you? Um, uh, and it's the only kill in the movie. Isn't that crazy? Like it's a famous horror movie. It's famous for like a, you know, an axe wielding murderer. Goes one person. One person dies. In, well, one person is killed in this movie, right? I know. Like, assumedly, another person does die. Sure, sure, um, sure. but uh, but yeah, it's it's actually, it, and that's actually what's interesting about it to me is stuff like that. Like you have this intense sense of dread, but overall, the the actual genuine, like what you would consider like slasher type violence, it's extremely limited. Yeah. Um, Andrew, there's some other performances we can talk about as we get to their scenes, but I think we mm-hmm. need we need to keep this thing moving. We need to talk about scenes of this movie because there's a lot to to unpack here. So let's do exactly that. Talk about what we like about this movie. I think that works. All the positives. And we're going to start with the best scene in the movie, or at least our personal favorite. So, Andrew, in your opinion, when is this movie firing at all cylinders? What is your favorite scene of The Shining? I alluded to this earlier uh, i mentioned this uh particular scene but i am going to point it out as my favorite um but it's kind of when it's right after basically the ghost the grady butler tells jack that the, his kid is trying to bring help essentially um and this leads to wendy finding jack's manuscript that all it says is all work and no play makes jack a dull boy i love how it has a bunch of typos in it 
Yes. So showing that like, different even capitals though it's like, and like even though it's like this weird kind of repetition mania, he's still like making human mistakes. Um, and there's a different format. Then, like some of it's written in like script format. Like it's a screenplay. Yeah, like and, it's dialogue. Yeah. Like it's like it's dialogue somebody's saying and stuff like that. So I so it's like he's writing a book, but it's just the same phrase over and over again. And like this is like obviously the the bar scene that precedes this, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, is instrumental in like knowing that Jack is like gone, that like th- this is Jack is Jack's no longer home. Basically, he's been completely succumb- like the hotel has taken him. Um, this is the moment when Wendy, who has been anticipating this the whole movie and has already essentially been afraid of Jack this whole movie, this is the moment that she knows. Like she's walking around with the bat. She knows it's wrong. She sees that manuscript and it's over. She knows at that point that Jack is whatever has happened has happened. He's not coming back. Um, and so, um, this leads to kind of a little bit of a cat and mouse thing where like Jack sneaks up behind her and it's God, like, and he's doing that thing again where he's like, she's like, I just wanted to talk. And he's like, fine, let's talk. And this is little, again, a little, all of his Jack Nicholson isms and, uh, slash Jim backs Carrey. her up the stairs. Jim Carrey comes after this, man. You gotta know what's, you gotta, gotta pick your battles there. But, um, uh, so we kind of, you know, this is like a small cat and mouse game. Where like he's approaching and she's backing up and she's got the baseball bat. and She's kind of swinging it very haphazardly. She's terrified. Yeah, she's absolutely terrified in this moment. And he's approaching and he's trying to do the whole like, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be fine. And then it gets to that, you know, your, your intro line. They're on the steps as she's walking up, trying to get away from him. And he says, I don't want to hurt you. I just want to bash your brains in. And he asks her to give her a bat. She doesn't. And he finally kind of makes a move and she whacks him and then bashes him in the head and he falls down the steps. And it's deeply satisfying. Yes. Um, a very good stunt fall, this, too. Like, there's no way that was Jack Nicholson, but like that dude no. tumbles down the stairs. <laughs> that, dude, that dude took that hit yeah. and he took it right on the chin. Um, but, and then we obviously we, we cut and we wake up at Jack Nick. She's dragging Jack Nicholson into the pantry and she locks him in there. And this is just, I, I think this is the moment where. It kind of finally all like everybody essentially knows the score at this point. Yeah. Um, and I think the performance here by Shelley Duvall is really, really good. Obviously, Jack Nicholson is doing like there's this calm kind of mania that he's doing right here. Like it's not the unhinged, at least not kind of until the end. It's these like bursts of rage mixed in with this kind of almost unsettling kind of quietness. And uh you know, he's switching between like this, come on, we'll figure it out, to I'm going to bash your brains in. So it cuts back and forth. He's dialing it up, dialing it forward and back pretty much consistently this whole scene. It's really, really good. And like I said, it culminates in a huge moment of catharsis when Shelly Duvall finally bashes this dude in the head and then locks him in a pantry. And yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It, I mean, great pick. Uh, yeah. So much to unpack here. I, Nicholson's performance here, it is so some of the bad reviews I was reading earlier, like talk about his performance and he's just he they say he's like silly and loony and you know, someone said jumping Jack Nicholson or whatever. But I I watched this scene and I'm like, this is terrifying. Cause like if if I was Shelly Duvall and this band was after me were Lone's Hotel and he was acting this manically, I would be horrified. Like, this is very scary. But there is there's something comedic's not the right word, but the fact that, you know, he says, here's Johnny. He's, he's 
or you know, Wendy, I'm home. Like he's 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 messing with her. There's some psychological torment yeah. by his lighthearted words, but then all of a sudden he's he's got a lighthearted tone, but he's saying I'm gonna bash your brains in. Like there's this psychological torture. But again, it's the situation and the fact that he's chasing down Shelly Duvall that makes it scary. If he was, say, acting exactly like this, but beating himself up in a bathroom a la Liar Liar, it would be hilarious. But the same energy. You're going so hard on. I'm going to make a video that goes, I think, a side-by-side. Anyway, I'll I'll leave it there. I've made my point. Uh, I think think I've made my point. I don't know. I think think (laughs) it is an interesting point to just point out that, like, there are sometimes so few degrees between types of performance. Like, you know, at what point does a performance become parody? Like, I think that's actually, like, a fair observation. And, like, Jack Nicholson's performance is, like, literally, like, one click away from arguably going into that parody section. Where, like, in, like you said, if you strip away the context of this, the way he's acting is almost objectively funny. Yeah, because you know just how he's acting and what he's doing, but when you put it within the context of this film and the story, and you contrast it against Shelley Duvall's performance, it's terrifying. Especially because as when faced with his genuinely terrified wife with a baseball bat, he's choosing to act in this almost parody way, and it just creates an even greater distinction and an even greater contrast, and it makes it all the more, at bare minimum, unsettling. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, maybe not outright scary every time, but just deeply uncomfortable to see terror contrasted with almost a difference to that terror. And instead, I'm, you know, going to get my stuff in, uh, like the tomorrow <laughs> wrestling term. Um, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Andrew, I've got, all right, I've got three things to say about this. One, I think this is often. If you were to ask somebody what the famous line from The Shining is, here's Johnny's probably first. But I think a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. It's never said out loud. I, I think that's – I wouldn't go as far as say it's a Mandal- uh Andrew, I almost said Mandalorian effect. I meant Mandela effect. Um, I am I am, I am, am losing it, Andrew. I've been in this house for too long. Uh, even Give me the back, Chris. There's this uh, – the Office, Dwight references this. He pulls his hair back like Jack Nicholson, and he says, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But that, he doesn't actually say that in the movie. Uh, also, Andrew, I would say, did you know this? But you're a smart guy. You probably knew this. I didn't know this. That that is a, an existing phrase, an idiom that existed well before this book or movie. Oh, yeah. I thought it was from The Shining. I thought that was it was unique. To, I mean, how would I, how would I know otherwise? I've only heard it in reference to this movie. I wasn't, I, I never read text before this. Anyway, I didn't know that, and I bet someone listening to this podcast also didn't know that. So I think I've, I've shared. Chris, some do news. you know how old that saying actually? Like is? the 1800s. I was reading. I was reading up on it. It's from the 1600s. Oh, okay. Even... The second line, the second line comes in the 1800s, mm. but is a very, very old saying. All yeah, play like, and I... no work makes Jack a dull toy. Is that what it is? This mere toy. Mere toy. Um, uh, but no, it's, it's, I do like that you point out that he never says it. I think that's very interesting um, because it's another one of those like 
you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, we're remembering things that don't exist because yeah. again, our memories are completely reliable and never make things up like genie movies starring Sinbad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh and then, anyway, this scene is great. The, this scene is great. I actually, I have three things oh, about that line. It only said oh, two of them. Well, that more. was number one. Oh, it's two. I'm sorry. There's What's two. The third? Yes, please. I apologize. He doesn't say it. It existed before the film and book. Okay. <laughs> and in other languages, they shot alternate versions of this with not just, they didn't just translate all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. They found other idioms or phrases from that culture and wrote it in that language. There's a German one, a Spanish one, there's different versions written out on all those pages. They shot all these different versions so it would play in uh, different markets on the world. That was pretty cool. Kind of like in Winter Soldier, where the list of stuff he was writing down was all different depending on the region it was from. Oh, oh like his, you're talking about Captain America's like like to-do list? Oh, yeah. like catching up on Like when he was culture. like the Trouble Man soundtrack. Oh, like, okay. so it was Though apparently they switched that list in various other versions to more regionally appropriate things. For some um, reason, I thought you were going to say like the keywords that activate the Winter Soldier they changed, and I'm curious if they did change those. Like, <laughs> um. I actually, uh, you know, so that's the the three things. First off, interesting notes on all three. I think so. And I like the context of the phrase, too, because you could take what it says in a variety of different ways with the idea that by trying to work on his book, it's essentially driven him crazy. But there's also the reading that you could have of this that working at kind of denying who he is has part of what's driven him crazy, too. This idea that pretending to be a normal father with a normal family in a normal situation is actually part of what's driven him crazy. So there's a lot of different ways that you can read that phrase into how he has kind of lost it. Now, obviously we know the hotel is a massive piece of this and the hotel has also played very immensely with his mind and the movie itself also plays with the notion of what's real and what's not. Are there ghosts? Aren't there ghosts? We can talk about that a little bit later, but great scene. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm agreeing with you as far as this is my favorite. I it, this and or the bar. I mean, I, now that we talked about the scene, I think I wanted to pick this, but I was kind of leaning towards the bar. But yeah, it, they go hand in hand because like it's him finally succumbing to the forces of the hotel, and then the result of that is what we see here with him and Shelley Duvall. But the bar scene, especially the second bar scene where. The ballroom is filled with people from the 1920s. It's so eerie and weird and unsettling. And there's nothing like horrific happening. It's it's a ballroom full of people. Like it is again without context. It's a very normal scene. It's a it's a it's a party at a hotel. But the fact that we know they're in this isolated, empty hotel, literally snowed in, and there's this room full of people all of a sudden, and he's drinking and like, is he really consuming alcohol or is that just representing him succumbing to the evil that's been within him? Alcoholism slash ghosts and demons. I mean, like there's just like, this is a lot of ways to read a lot of stuff in this movie. And this is the kind of ambiguity I like. Like, I don't need a solid answer on did Jack Torrance physically consume alcohol. I like that we could read it different ways. Um, is there a bartender at all? Is he looking in the mirror? And there's a lot that's been made of all the mirrors in this movie. There's a, there's a lot of fun 
subtext. Fun's a weird word to use, but there's a lot of subtext to read into and examine, and I like a lot of that stuff. Um, but the bar- shout out to uh, Joe Turkle as the bartender, yes, which I'm yes, sure you were about yes. to point out there. Alum of the show. Alum of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we just talked about this man, and man, he's he's the creator, right, of the androids in Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. So, so di- both kind of unsettling, creepy characters, but very different. I mean, like the 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 gaudy, obsessive person from Blade Runner. Um, and then this, he's. I mean, he's really just kind of playing a straightforward bartender, but there's something eerie about him, right? Well, like I mean, he's it's... being so, he's being so matter of fact to like, because clearly Jack Nicholson in both bar scenes is like on the edge. And like, we also know that like they physically removed the alcohol. There's nothing at this bar. And yet this bartender is here and he's not reacting to anything around him. The bartender, as far as he is concerned, is just a bartender serving a drink. That's, that's all he is. And so there's this, 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 the, the, the way he's playing it so straight within it's again, it's talking about within the framing of it. If you put that bartender in a scene where a bunch of guys are drinking stuff in a movie, you don't really think much of it. Yeah, you may be like, hey, he's being a little stilted, but yeah. he's a bartender. He's probably tired of talking to people. But by putting it contrasted against Nicholson's kind of descent into madness, and in especially in the original scene where the room is empty, and it's just the two of them, Yeah, and then contrasting it with the party scene later, just all of it, it there's just this eeriness to this character. Just like he's being so straight to the point of eeriness. It's like, like it's he, just unsettling. He knows everything that's going on. It's like, I feel like he has all the answers and he is just right. staring at Jack and waiting for him to kind of realize what's happening to him. Waiting for him to catch up. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's a yeah. great way to put it. It's a fantastic way to put it. Like, yeah, the bartender, he knows what's up and he's just, you know, he's like, it's kind of that he'll be with us soon. Don't you worry. Like, yeah, you know, your money, I love it. Like your money's no good here. And like, they have that brief conversation where he's like, I like to know who's paying for my drinks. And he's like, it's no concern of yours. And all of that, like you said, he knows what the deal is. He knows what's going on. He knows how this works. And it doesn't concern him because he's been here for forever. Who knows how long he's been here, but he knows Jack Nicholson's about to join them. And these scenes are just great. They And they're so interesting in their contrast, too. I guess we're sort of talking about both of these now. But, sure. um, but uh, they're so interesting in their contrast because Lloyd's approach is very similar. But that first scene... It's like he's right on the cusp. And if you kind of look at it from that perspective, the conversation with the bartender is interesting because it's like he knows and he's almost there, but he's not quite, you know, descended completely yeah. yet. And then Shelly Duvall kind of runs in and breaks it up and there's no bartender, there's no booze, there's no anything. And we move on for a brief moment. And then he's back and it's full of people. And at that point, it's different. Lloyd's approach is the same regardless, but something has changed. The, the you know Jack Nicholson has gotten deeper into the holds of the hotel. Yeah, he's and now deeper, it's not yeah. just it's not just the bartender he sees now. It's the whole party, and that is the difference. At that point, by that second scene, Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance is gone. Essentially, any semblance he had of humanity has given way to whatever plans this hotel had for him. And it's it, that understated performance by Joe Turkle as Lloyd just can't be ignored it is a small part there's a bunch of other bit parts here most of them really don't matter but that little performance by joe turkle there is completely instrumental i think in those two scenes succeeding in the goal of what they're trying to portray yeah it's it's 
it's another thing you see Perry need to reference a ton, like the 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 lone creepy bartender dressed the way he is. I see it referenced in a lot of other media. Um, it's it's really good. Uh, you know, if I th- these two are definitely my favorite scenes. It's really the magic of this movie is really coming together. But if I wanted to maybe get into like a favorite, like five to ten seconds, the first time or every time you see it, a few times in the movie, like we just silently cut to the elevator doors opening in slow motion and blood pouring out man what is what a feeling like what a cuz it's i think the first time it's like danny is sensing it ahead of time and it's mm-hmm. just we have no explanation we don't know it's just this ominous feeling and it's it's ah, god i love movies i love cuz it's such a it's a visual. It's a thing that only works in a movie, right? Right? Because right? it's it's you not. Could, it's you not... could describe that. You could describe that as deeply as you wanted. I do not think it would have the same effect that it yes. had seeing it. Uh, you can describe blood coming through elevator doors, blood gushing or pouring through elevator doors, whatever you want to call it's that. It's not literal. Like it's just there to give you that feeling. It's not like oh, I wonder how we're going to find out how the elevator filled up with blood. Like it's not. That's not why it's there. It's just this. I read into it, this crazy feeling that it, this dread that it puts inside of you, um, of this this wave of evil coming at you that can't be stopped. Like it's just this. Because if you, I don't know if this translates one to one to the book, but like I imagine if if you're writing, you know, Danny has a vision of an elevator door opening a blood. Like it just it doesn't. You're thinking about him thinking about it rather than just this image being presented to you, which is different. And not even, I'm not, you know, books are great. They have their own things that they can do that movies can't, that, you know, but yeah, this is a movie podcast. I love movies. And this is just such a it's great almost, example of visual Dare I say, it's almost like different mediums have different strengths on which they should try and focus. That's exactly right. Versus Andrew. trying to adapt the things that work in film. Like, you know, this is like, you know, you get it all the time. We're like, you know, the idea of a comic versus a movie versus a book, like why they're different applications. Like a comic has no budget. The comic is the limit of the artist's storytelling, the artist and the writer's storytelling. A movie is the director's vision as painfully realized as it can be by the technologies of the time. Whereas again, a book, you're not even constricted by crafting an actual visual. With a book, you can combine a whole lot of different things together. You can create a sense of dread a sense of wonder. You can create horrific imagery without having to give it a firm shape. It's all these different things to do it. But that image in particular in The Shining like, is just fantastic. It's, it's like you said, it's one of those things that when you talk about the success of film or what film is used for, it's perfect. It creates that sense that, you know, just that, that ominous sense of dread yeah. that this is going to go badly. And I'm going to use that to segue into my next point, which is that something I've always found very interesting about the film is that for the longest time, and this is something that's been debated very heavily, is basically, is it ghosts? Is it, what is it, basically? Yeah. You know, there's a throwaway line at the beginning of the movie that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground. Also, an endless joke of all time was sort of reused in Poltergeist, uh, where they didn't move the bodies. I mean, this can't um, be the first instance of that, is it? But it's got to be. I'm sure it's not. It's probably not a cliche at this point. Though. When it on release, it probably wasn't I would imagine a cliche not. Yet, but. but Poltergeist comes out, I think, two years after yeah. this in '82. 
does the same thing. Um, but so you get that, that when you think about it, but extremely, yeah. um, massively, extremely. <laughs> yeah. Um, the idea that you know, first off, the idea that we would be so disingenuous to the Native Americans just build stuff on top of their burial grounds, but also too that just like we that that would cause them to want to do irreparable damage to people. <laughs> like the spirits would suddenly be like, well. I guess you're staying at this hotel built on the burial ground. Time to get my revenge. Also, Time to none put of on a bear costume and give a man a blowjob just to freak you out. I was going to say, also, <laughs> none of the ghosts we see in this movie are Native Americans, so I guess they can't be that mad about it. Um, but um, it's so. You, but either way, you get that throwaway line at the beginning, and that's kind of the end of it as far as, quote-unquote, explanation, yeah. like explanation why. And it's not given a lot of attention. Um, they mentioned that they, you know, they did it and there was some, there was some attacks or even some, some kind of pushback from the local indigenous groups and that's it. Now, the rest of the movie, it's been pointed out that almost all of Jack Nicholson's interactions with ghosts are when he's looking at reflective surfaces of some kind, either he's facing a mirror, whether it's the bar, whether it's the ballroom, whether it's the bathroom, whether it's the shiny door in the pantry, they point out that anytime he sees a ghost, he's looking at a reflective surface. And so the idea sort of being presented there is that they are presenting the notion that maybe they're not actually ghosts. He's just sort of seeing them. Um, Now, this gets undone throughout the course of the film. I see the biggest key against this is how he gets out of the pantry because he has to get out of that. Well, I was physically locked in there. I was I I like this, by the way. I haven't really dived into this, but um. I mean, Shelley Duvall sees ghosts, and she sees the lobby full well, of skeletons. Like, that that kind of undoes it for me. To a degree, yes. But then you have the same motion that, at that point, she's terrified and hysterical. Could she, you know, is she seeing things that aren't there brought on by this, this, this kind of hysteria that she's facing? Okay. But then Danny sees things. But Danny has The Shining. Right. So is it... Is he actually seeing ghosts or is he seeing visions of the past, yeah. visions of the future? What Danny sees what and what Jack happening? sees are very different because we they learn are. about the murders and Danny is clearly seeing the specific murders we learned about. Right? He's in my seeing mid- the like, twins. He's, he's seeing the sisters. Well, the, you get 237. 237 is where they have a little bit of overlap. Sort of. Yeah, but you don't see um, Danny in the room, which is very interesting. You don't see Danny in 237. You don't. So it's you have no idea what he's seen. But anyway... And but that's another interesting piece of it is they're all seeing different things, yeah. Which I think also lends itself almost both ways. Like it could almost lend it to that they're all seeing different things brought on by their own individual traumas, yeah. Or that the hotel is purposely not letting them all see the same thing to draw it out. You could play it either way. I think this is a re- now. I ultimately am on the side of there. There is something strange in the Overlook Hotel, and You're it gonna is call you me, know. Dude. It, yeah, exactly. Somebody else. Um, but uh, um, sit Casper uh, reference, Andrew. <laughs> you know my references, only the deepest. But um, but I've always liked this approach because until Jack is let out of that pantry, you can almost say that none of it's real. You can like you could create an argument crafted sort of around the idea yeah. that Jack Nicholson is just slowly descending whether it's brought on by the hotel, the isolation, the cabin fever, whatever, and that is a trauma that is being impacted around him. Now, The Shining is still a separate thing. That is essentially seen as the source of everything that Danny sees. So it doesn't necessarily mean the hotel is haunted. It just means he's seeing bad things that have happened here in the past and in the future, potentially in the future. Um, 
Now, with Shelley Duvall, like I said, she doesn't see anything for a long time. It's only towards the end when, like, after Jack has, like, full-on attacked her, tried to bash in the, you know, does bash in the bathroom door with the axe, and essentially at that point, she's terrified. So is she seeing weird hallucinations brought on by this kind of hysteria? Is she seeing real things? Now, again, like I said, I land very firmly on the side of there has to be something here, yeah. if only because Jack Nicholson gets let out of the pantry. Like, somebody has to do that. He doesn't break that door down. It's not happening. Jack Nicholson may be bigger than Shelley Duvall, but he's not bigger than a metal door. Uh, <laughs> well, he's clearly but, uh, like not touching. He's not doing anything, and you hear it click and open. Like it's very clearly yeah. a, another force. Somebody has it. some something has to yeah. do that, and so that's the moment where I think all question is lost, and you're kind of left with this notion that okay, there is something here. There is no question. That's when it's taken away. Now I believe that before this, but by the point that point in the movie, like you're like there's nothing. There's no question at this point. Something is going on here, and it has a hold of Jack, and it's basically like, finish the job, man. Um, and I, he tries. There's definitely, it's an evil hotel. It, my read on it, it's an evil hotel. It is full of evil people that did taboo, scandalous, evil things in their life, in the hotel, and they continue to do it in the hotel, even though they've died. That's my read on it and yes. as he sinks into his madness and deeper in the hotel he becomes one of those people and at the end when Shelley Duvall is seeing all the ghosts and stuff it is like Jack Torrance and the, the ghosts or whatever you call them in the hotel are all in the same team and they are all yeah. coming into this realm to kill Danny and to kill Shelley Duvall so they can't bring in outside help and he can right he can go over to the other side because you will notice that the ghosts do not want Scatman Crothers to come they right you know we're not going to talk about the insensitive language but the uh they don't want him there because they think he's going to stop them right and they know that he can help Danny so that's why they don't want him there and so it's again, it's very interesting. It it it's I think it's I think that's true. And it's also interesting to note that the people Danny sees first are not dangerous people. Like he sees the twins a lot. The twins are not dangerous. The twins are victims. Yeah. And so there's this sisters. original thing that, like he said, sisters. Sorry, they're not twins. Eight and ten, that's what he says. Yeah. Although they were actually they're played identical, by twins. Identical yeah. twins. But they're not the same age. Right. Um that's a joke I make to my cats all the time. I don't know if you've ever seen the night before. With Seth Rogen. Right, yeah. Um, but there's a scene at the beginning where he's talking to like his friend's two daughters, and they say he looks weird after say after he says he's Jewish and he's kind of offended, which he should be. But he looks at those two girls and he sees that they're very, very similar sitting together. And he's like, you guys ever seen The Shining? Jesus. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anytime. So I have two calico cats that look very similar at right. first glance. And so anytime I see them sitting together, I just look over and I'm like, you guys ever seen The Shining? Just. As like a gut, it's like a gut reaction. I can't help myself. But um, but uh, so Dan, and that's again lending to what Danny sees is not the same as what Jack sees. Jack has the hotel trying to sink its hooks into him. So like it starts with like temptation and stuff like that. When he goes to room two thirty seven, what he sees first is not the creepy old woman. He sees a beautiful young woman, and um, so like it's trying to lure him in originally. Like he goes to the bartender. The bartender's giving him alcohol. Like the hotel wants Jack to be like. We're on your side, buddy. We're giving you what you want. And it only kind of turns bad when there's this notion that maybe he's not going to go with it, but eventually he gives in. 
Danny is seeing mostly victims to start with. Now, you don't see what happens to him in 237, but he does leave with like a choke on his neck. Now, again, that doesn't mean that it was a malevolent thing. It may have been a victim that was trying to warn him, trying to do whatever. Yeah. We don't actually know. And Might be like with, a sixth sense situation where they're trying to... Yeah, like they're trying to like warn him and basically like, you got to get out of here. Although Tony was telling him, get out of here before then. Now, we do never find out what the deal with Tony is. Tony very much is presented yeah. as this potentially other thing. Now, the book sort of explains what Tony is, but in the movie, it never does. It's just kind of presented as like this almost Sixth Sense type thing that like it's sort of there to protect him, kind of. Like it's trying to tell him, hey, don't go there. And then there's a certain point where Tony takes over completely. Yeah. Because I think the idea is that Tony's like, I'll handle this and I won't let Danny see this, essentially. Well, that's that's um, also like a real response to the trauma. Like, yeah. It is multiple personalities like the trauma is too much for one psyche to handle. So you, you fracture and share the load. Um, so I, I real world applications of that are pretty limited, but if in the context of this movie, I think it's, uh, yeah, sure, that sure, way. Sure. but, um, I mean, this is a movie but, with a haunted uh, hotel and, and uh, psychic abilities. I mean, I, yeah, I, I could, I could see that. Uh, we got to keep it grounded, yeah. man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but I, I just, I really like, thinking about the mythology of this hotel i think it's given i i will kind of agree that with one of your criticisms of the ending but i think the build to that there's just so many interesting approaches they take with all of the characters okay in what they see um i so just before you get into that before you okay 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 yes 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 yes. you see me whining so (laughs) i saw i saw it coming i was like let me get let me get my positive stuff out of the way here but I just appreciate that the movie presents the experiences in the hotel as so different like jack is obviously seeing temptation and then eventually just being driven down and pulled down potentially against his will we're not really sure on what to finally trips him there but you've got all his real life trauma that he's facing like the things that he's done the things that he's trying to battle against is he battling against them for the right reasons is he denying it to himself who knows but the hotel exploits that gives him some of the things that he wants and even if he tries to resist it eventually says doesn't matter we're taking you anyway and they see they see in him what they see in themselves you point out that this is bad people doing bad things. And they look at Jack Nicholson and they're like, he's one of us. Yes. And so they take him for themselves. Now, Shelley Duvall's trauma is almost all simply related to Jack originally. Like everything she's feeling is not coming from the hotel. It's coming from Jack. Jack's treatment of her, Jack's personality, which means that her trauma is linked to the hotel, but she's not seeing anything external. She's not seeing anything until she comes out of that bathroom which is after Jack has tried to kill her the first time. The minute she emerges from there, that's when the hotel is at its essentially worst. She is seeing things because the hotel has now chosen to be like, you're going to see this stuff. You can see it's driven on by trauma, whatever. But at that moment, the hotel's like, we're going to show you all the stuff that happens here. And hopefully it's enough to trip you up so that Jack Nicholson can do the thing he needs to do. That's the thing that, you know, the hotel is distracting Shelley Duvall at that point. It wants her off guard so that Jack Nicholson can finish the job. It's helping him do the thing he needs to do, which the 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 door the butler told him when he was in the pantry. And then meanwhile, Danny has been seeing all these visions mostly. And then it tr- culminates in him and Jack kind of having their sort of cat and mouse chase throughout the hotel. It's all really well done. It gives everybody a different sense of what they're feeling in this hotel. And I think it works very well. And it's one of the most interesting things about the movie to me. Well said, Andrew. Uh, I love it. I 
I, I think we're, Except, we're, we're no, no, no. I think we're except. mostly vibing on the same page here. So my my read on this is that this hotel is made up of these these devious souls, these devious people. It, it's like they have their own hotel party every winter when it's unoccupied. Then it's the ghost time to come out and do their sleazy things that they always did when they're alive, and they continue to do in this other realm, this ghostly world that they're in, and they are dragging jack into it because he is susceptible because he has this darkness inside of him because he has this obsession and he thinks this hotel is gonna be like the key like oh i can finally have peace and quiet and time and i can write and he obsesses over it and he he never actually is able to write because he's just lying to himself about his true nature but the uh, the appeal of the hotel is what's dragging him in the this this promise of this thing he can chase but never actually achieve I imagine a world where, like, years later, the next caretaker is there in the winter alone. They see all the ghosts. One of them is Jack Torrance hammering away at his typewriter, compulsively trying to write this novel he will never write. And this hotel has them, and he's just he's just one of them. Um, so I, I, I think Shelley Duvall is seeing the stuff at the end of the movie because the the worlds are merging he is crossing over because the ghost she sees aren't attacking her chasing her they're doing no. their own insidious things and kind of just just bothered by her like the, the 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 sex we see in the room or the just the dead people just hanging out distractions yeah they're, they're just they're just doing their ghostly things Illu- illusions michael um <laughs> like just just it's you could look at it any number of ways but yeah it's it's largely yeah, so I, I think we're mostly in, in vibe. So here. to me, this this final picture, I'm not really bothered by it because my read on it, which I think is like the the layman's read on it at this point, if there is one, is that once you are part of the hotel, once you're absorbed by it, once you're into it, you are there. You're there in the past. You're there in the future. You're there in the now. You are on time in this realm isn't the same as we perceive it. So I think that's all it's really showing us is that he is part of the hotel staff now i i I don't think the you know the camera like pans down to say 1924 like that's we we, that's a little heavy 21 sorry 21 it's a little heavy-handed like he's in the photograph like we we understand already that's already impossible we don't need to go to a specific year but that's my read on it um there's other reads on it. It, it stanley kubrick himself i kept getting i was reading about it kept linking to this like same interview where he kind of passively says reincarnation maybe it's reincarnation he was a caretaker there before look the man directed it he he knows more than me about it i guess but i think that's a very boring he he was he's a reincarnation of a past caretaker and he goes back to the caretaker again. Like, there's not. There's no juice there. You've always like, been that, here. The, yeah, and there's the stuff like he has deja vu when he first goes there. But I think that's all just indicative of like this is his final destination. That yeah, like I yeah, that was kind of how I saw it, and that's actually one of the interesting reads because you you pointed out to me that the first scene where he's verbally abusive to Shelley Duvall to to Wendy, uh, the hotel doesn't have a hold on him yet. And the only disagreements I really have with that is I you've not really been giving anything overt, but I think the hotel does have a hold on him at that point, as evidenced by the fact that he said that when he was there, it was so familiar. So and it's just my read. I don't think your reading of that is wrong. Just how I see it is that the moment he steps in, 
there's influence happening already I, by I, the fact I, I that agree he sees that. it. I agree with that. Uh, um, it's, but it's that scene is key to me. Okay, so there's this criticism that oh, you know he's gonna go crazy because it's Jack Nicholson. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying. I don't think the movie is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I don't think they're trying to convince us that he's an upstanding citizen and then descends the map. I think oh, yeah. the movie's upfront about it. So, like, I don't think it's a fault. You might not like the story choice, but I think it's a deliberate choice made by the movie. I mean, we have the story about him pulling his arm out of socket. And, yeah, he was drinking then. But their drive up there, he is not too interested in engaging with his family in the car. But when his son asks about the Donner Party, he is delighted to tell his little kid about this sick thing, um, cannibalism. Like he's just like, it's fine. Oh, they had- saw it on the TV. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, they had to resort to cannibalism to survive. Then he's like, has no problem with that. He has kind of problems like relating and being normal on his son, but like to to dive into this sick story, he sees no issues with it. There's something there beneath the surface right like there's and i think i think that's a fair reading i think a lot of people just see it in comparison to the novel where he's presented as a much more in the novel it's presented much more as he's as he is generally likable and trying to do the right thing and dragged against his will kind of into this hotel because they see enough to play on it with i think reading it the way you do is more in line with the intention that at bare at, at at most he's maybe trying to be like hey i can be better but he's really not like he can't pretend to be interested in engaging with his kid he can't pretend to be interested in talking to his wife like you know she's like maybe we should go take a walk and he's like ah, i should try to get some writing done first um but like it's this th- there's this gut check resistance to engaging with his family even before the influence is overt and I think yeah. that's not an improper read of it at all. The only scene, and I mentioned this to you, I think, before we started recording, where there is a moment where I think he is sympathetic, or at least they're giving you this mild sliver that just maybe there's something going on. Is he's got this scene where he's like laying down at the table, he's asleep, and he's like, he's like crying out in his sleep. And Wendy comes running and she wakes him up. And Jack is like horrified at whatever dream he's just had, at whatever he's just seen. He is absolutely terrified. It's great acting. He, he's so vulnerable. It's fantastic. He's so vulnerable in that moment. And that's the one moment in the whole movie where I have like the, the faintest glint that maybe he doesn't, that maybe there is something else and that maybe he is being dragged against his will into this kind of pit of debauchery or whatever's going on in this hotel. And it gives way pretty quick, but it's, and maybe that's all you need. You just need that one moment where you were just reminded, hey, Maybe at one time there was something. And in that moment, he got so scared, it snapped him back for just a second. But I do like that scene a lot. It's great acting. And it's basically your one moment in the movie that you do cast doubt on the notion that this is that he's just got a mask on the whole time and that you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. I, I think it's just showing that he's not ready. He's not worn down yet. Like he's seeing a vision of what's going to happen, and it horrifies him because... And this is something I think. Why wouldn't it? I think this is probably before we started recording. But you know, we talk about like, oh, you know, he's going to go crazy. But okay, yeah, you know, he's a bad guy in the beginning. But being an abusive 
husband and alcoholic <laughs> it's still a huge leap to go to axe murder like it's still yeah, a big like, fall yeah, there's there. a, so there's a, there's a there's a big there's a good little river you got to cross to get from one to the other of that so, so to I me completely yeah that scene where he's horrified he's a bad guy there's darkness underneath but he's still repulsed and scared of this thing happening thing, this, yeah. um and obviously by the end of the movie he's he's embraced it he, he knows that's what he has to do um or he's been given no choice at that point. Um, well, yeah, whatever point, you read on it might be. Whatever you want to read it. But just a lot of ways to read this movie. And uh, it's one of my favorite things about it. Um, I, there's just a lot of conversations. I like this movie a lot. I get why it's a classic. I, I'm going to rewatch it. And, and it's it's as, I mean, I enjoy talking about it with you. Uh, it, it makes for a good conversation, all these interpretations. Andrew, I'm I'm saying all this because I'm setting something up. Uh I've come to terms that picture at the end. I kind of like it, and I, 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 I can feel that there's probably some purpose behind it. I found another thing to to to. Oh God, I don't want to use the word hate. There's another thing in this movie though that that drives me nuts, Andrew. Um, before like the very beginning of this movie, when he goes in for his interview, we learn about a previous caretaker that murdered his family. He murdered his mm-hmm. two little girls and his wife. We see the girls. We we know very clearly who that is. That man is Charles Grady. And then Jack Torrance is at this party and he runs into somebody in the bathroom that says they are Delbert Grady. But Jack is like, wait a minute. I know you. I know what you did. And he recognizes that he's the caretaker that killed his family. But Andrew, he has a different name. Why is that not Charles Grady? I think uh, there are the reading I've seen of that is that there are a lot of instances in this film of doubles um, of there being multiple. Like obviously a, a key example would be Jack Nicholson in the photo versus Jack Nicholson. Now, if you subscribe like to the theory instances. that those are two separate people, he's been reincarnated. If two separate people, or even not necessarily two separate people, but just like or, two presence, whatever okay. you want to call it. But, um, there is a lot of um, instances of doubles within the movie. I'm not going to read through all of them. There's a bunch. You can go to the wiki. There's a whole section literally on two Grady's and other doubles. There's literally a whole section you can read about literally just exactly this topic. Um, and the problem with a lot of the reads on these things, and especially a lot of the ones presented, is it's other people reading about it. Like, other people reading into it. And all they're doing is just giving you what they think. Yes. And that's yes. fine. No, it, but you have to so bring much commentary. You have to bring so much into the movie to make sense of any of these. Th- th- right. Like it's, but that's my point. Like you're, you're very rarely seeing Kubrick himself explaining the duality of it. And I'm not saying he has to by any means, but I do always get it when like these, these things are almost always presented as like, um, as these kind of like it's Kubrick experts. And I'm like, well, what makes you a Kubrick expert? Like, how do you become a Kubrick expert? Like, how does that work? And, um, like, um, you just have these, these like theories that are put out there. And I just don't always think there's a lot to them. Uh, there are a lot of instances of doubles within the movie. I will say that. Like there's, there's you know, mirrors and that's, that's fine. Like, like Halloran's bedroom. Like they, they randomly, there's two po- posters of naked women for some reason. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not complaining um, about that. Uh, um, but like there's, 
There's um that yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can look at. Um obviously But why give them the same last like, name? Like that that implies they're related or brothers or father and son. Like that creating a connection. I I, is, I think Andrew, I don't like it. <laughs> like that, I, that, fine. that should, I'm not telling you you listen, have to. Um, that should be Charles Grady running into someone that you know existed in the past and did a horrific thing. That's crazy enough. One, why change his name? And two, if he has a different name, why does Jack recognize that it's the same guy? It's a different name. Why is he like, I know what you photos. did to your family? He's- he says he saw him from photos. That's what he says. But he he's, he knows the story of Charles Grady killing his family. And when he sees him in the bathroom, he's like, you did this horrific thing to your family. He accuses him and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He accuses but he him claims of the crime. to recognize him from pictures. He claims that he recognizes him But how does he know he's pictures? the guy that killed his family? Because he looks like the picture of the guy who killed his family. But it's a different name. And he knows the guy's name. And look, I... Chris, I'm I'm not telling you that you're wrong well, for thinking what you're thinking. I'm just saying podcast, that like the way like Jack Jack sees saw his picture of of Charles Grady. Okay. And then when he sees Delbert Grady, is like, you're that guy. He's like, I don't care you introduce yourself as Delbert. I know you're Charles Grady. That's that's what he's doing. Well, yeah, like a dude kills his family okay. and says, Yeah, that's not me. Why would you I'd be like, No, it's, it's you. I saw me. the picture. I'm, like, I'm Delbert. Bert. I'm clearly Delbert a made up name. Grady. <laughs> I'm Delbert Grady. Um, um that I can't po- I couldn't possibly be Charles Grady. Charles Grady is not Delbert Grady. They're different names, sir. Um, it it it, um, it bugs me. Yeah. And then whenever like like I love conversation around the movie, but when I like I look into it, I I see theories that bring in so much. I'm like, guys, stop. Like this is well, right. The they're adding like they're they're there's the there's a scene I've referenced a couple times already where like you see into a hotel room and there's a man in a, a bear or dog costume, a little bit of debate, having sex with a man, doing some kind of sexual favors with a man. It's very brief, it's very bizarre. And you try to look into the And there's two of them. Two what? Uh, People in costume? Just two men. I'm just I'm just creating the tool. Oh, duel, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh so I go down that rabbit hole and it's like well, he's a bear. Bear's very symbolic in this movie. You see bears in Danny's childhood room. And when Danny is being examined by the doctor, his pants are around his ankles and there's a bear pillow on his bed because bear represents sexuality. It represents sexual trauma. Therefore, Jack was sexually abusing his son. And I'm like, you brought too much into this. Like, that is... I'm not going to say anyone's read on this is not valid. That's not a fun way to talk about art, but I don't subscribe to this because you're doing such heavy lifting to introduce these things. There's this. If you have to make up like significant lore for your theory to be true, it can't possibly be true as far as I'm concerned. Like if you have to create. Yes. A whole book. Like if you have a point and you have the movie and you have to fabricate like 10 steps to get there. It's not the case. It's not how it works. Like, it's. It, I think the the citizens of the the citizens, the Denzians, whatever you want to call them, of the hotel. I think they do get looked at a lot when all they're supposed to be is just unsettling. Like they're just I, supposed to be how, these glimpses reason. of the past. Yeah. These glimpses of the past of people that did. You know, not that there's anything wrong with the dude in dog costume giving a doing stuff with the dude in the suit. There's nothing wrong with that. Do your thing. Um, but uh, it's these these. 
it's a movie that I think has conversations that are completely warranted and interesting, as evidenced by some of the conversations we've had. And then, but I think by the nature of that, it gets overanalyzed, and stuff that doesn't have a real explanation gets analyzed, and people try to create explanations when sometimes they just do things because they feel like it. Um, I went down like, this, you know, this great rabbit hole with the the photograph at the end. There's this whole, it's yeah. a WordPress document. I, I've seen it shared around like Reddit and stuff. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it was, it's, it's pages and pages long about this photograph, analyzing it and the brooch that everyone has and the people around him and how Jack Nicholson is posed like uh, like Baphomet, I think, like an Egyptian god of death and what it all means. I mean, it is oh a long god. dissertation. And they're like, Stanley Kubrick is so exacting and so such a perfectionist and nothing is a mistake. And at the very end, they go... Oh, I guess I was wrong. Uh, here's the original photo. They just put Jack Nicholson onto an existing stock photo. Nothing was planned. They just stuck his head on I it. Cannot, so, I cannot. I absolutely love when things like that happen. Where it. people go so deep. Like, it <laughs> happened with... Uh, God, I think it happened with Bray Wyatt once. It was like some promo video they put out there. And they were like hyper analyzer maybe it was a chris jericho return promo or something like that anyway there was all these pictures and like illusions that were in the footage and people were like hyper analyzing it being like look at the placement of this look at the numbers on the chalkboard there's no way and then somebody found out that it was just all stock footage (laughs) that like all the all the imagery and all the stuff in there was just stock footage and they were putting creepy filters over it and it was just amazing and don't get me wrong i don't want to i don't want to you know, rain on anybody's parade if you're having fun discussing stuff. But you got to be prepared that sometimes when you do that, it just doesn't mean anything. Like it's, it's, you know, what's the, uh, I just, I really don't like them. You know, it's like the age old David, there's a, there's a Joe, there's an old David Lynch interview where somebody, he says, it's an old joke meme you can see around, but somebody, it's David Lynch and he says, because if you think about it, Eraserhead is honestly my most spiritual film. And the guy goes, oh, elaborate on that. And David Lynch goes, no. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, I no it. is a complete sentence. Um, you know, it's that, it's that notion that like, and I guess discussion is fine, but you have to present it as like this notion that like, there's just not going to be an answer. Like, there's no answer to what the photograph means. I guess there sort of is because Stanley Kubrick talked about it. But like, so much of this stuff is just, it exists within the script. It existed within the story. And I, I think some of it just doesn't have an answer like people want it to. I, I kind of, like, I've kind of discussed my read on this, but ultimately, if you want to really push me for like what's happening here, um, I'm going to go back to the thing where uh, Childs is pushing uh, uh, McCready to explain, well, how's it do that? How's it copying us? And he goes, I don't know because it's from outer space. So like, I don't know. It's a haunted hotel. Like, I can't tell you the science of what's happening here. It's a creepy place. I don't know. The whole Uh, point is it doesn't make sense. Uh, Yeah, it's like, it's that, it's you're you're asking for, or as as the age-old saying goes, you're asking for a rational answer to an irrational situation. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's what, what, I, I think our reads of this are very similar. This hotel is clearly up to no good. Um. There's no meddling kids to stand in its way, or I guess there was. Um, rest in peace, twins. Um, not twins. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, I thought Danny. I thought you were talking about um, Danny. Danny's the one that foils <laughs> no, no. the hotel's plans uh, he does. by communicating he does. with um, uh, that meddling kid, man. Yeah. Um, it's true. Um, kids with big wheels, man, not to be trusted. But um, 
I, I you know, I think I, I think we've made our points pretty clear on what overall we think of this movie and why we read it, but it's there are interesting points of discussion coming out of it. Um I, I'm not really a big fan of the reincarnation angle. Um It's just not interesting. I think it's just not interesting to me, but I think I think if you read the ending photograph as Jack kind of being absorbed, well, I guess your problem is that he doesn't have the same name in both instances. Grady doesn't have the same name both times, but um, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I just kind of see it as the hotel's weird. It's just what the hotel does. Like you know, you're you're part of our part of our group now. Yeah. Um, we can't just have you have the same name as a mass murderer. You have to have a respectable name, like Delbert. <laughs> um, but uh. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to talk about here. I won't deny that, but there are definitely, I mean, that's true with any, like Blade Runner's got plenty of discussion like this where there's people that have, I mean, the whole is Deckard a replicant We don't need to go there again. It's completely manufactured. <laughs> yeah. Like it's completely yeah. made up. Like it's, it's, it's nonsense. But anyway, I, yeah. Uh, I got nothing else to say, man. I, I think we I, covered it. I, um, <laughs> I've come around this movie uh, very hard. I'm a fan. Look forward to watching it more, discussing it more. And uh, the 4K looks amazing. Literally, the movie started. I I thought they did that. I thought it was a um. What do you call those little videos? Like a production company logo at the beginning of a movie. Yeah. I thought they just like updated the production company logo to whatever they're currently using when it's like that sweeping shot over the mountains. Because it looks so good, but it's just an insanely good transfer. So highly recommend checking out that 4K oh, yeah. if you can. Absolutely. Uh, I do want to give a brief of briefest shout outs to Dr. Sleep, uh, both the novel and the book. Um, the novel and the book. Um, <laughs> both of them, know, really? Um, which both, one do you, which uh, one do you recommend I read first? The novel or the book? Uh, I would go with the novel and then follow up with the book afterwards. Okay. Um, and then the screenplay? No, anyway, that? sorry. <laughs> then read the screenplay, then watch the actual movie. Um, no, I... Um, so years later, decades later, I mean, The Shining comes out in 1977, 78. Um, I'm looking because I don't want to look like a fool. 77. And so Dr. Sleep comes out in 2013. So it is full on like 36 years later that he decides to go back based off the very simple premise of how, who does Danny Torrance grow up to be? How do you, how would you reconcile the events of the shining as a child with the rest of your life? And the short answer is, uh, not great. Um, turns out, it turns out having your dad try to murder you with an axe leaves some permanent scars. Um, but, uh, it is, uh, the book I think is very interesting. It's obviously not quite as, um, it's a different type of story than the shining. Um, but it's about Danny as an adult. There are flashbacks to some of the stuff that happened in the aftermath of the shining. Um, but I also do want to shout out the the film of Dr. Sleep. Um, I mentioned it, obviously, um, a little bit ago with talking about Danny Lloyd. But um, it's fant- I think it's a really, really well-done movie that tries to actually bridge that gap between The Shining Book and The Shining Novel. Stephen King actually is a fan of the Dr. Sleep movie. Uh, and he actually does appreciate that Mike Flanagan kind of went out of his way to create something that functions essentially as a sequel to both the book and the movie. Um, like obviously it can tie into aspects of the movie. It does end up at the Overlook Hotel, but it works functionally uh to the book as well. Um, so 
Mike Flanagan wrote and directed that, did a very good job with it. Ian McGregor plays the grown-up Danny Torrance. Rebecca Ferguson plays our villain Rose the Hat. She's absolutely terrifying. Um, Alex Esso steps in, does play Wendy Torrance in that movie uh, because they do have some flashbacks and versus trying to like... De- it's, it was a tough decision because they were like, we could de-age people, we could try to use like like outtakes or something, but it wasn't really going to work. And yeah. they were like, it's not going to work super well. So they ultimately went with the option of recasting. Um, it's It was a little controversial. I, I think it works, though. There's not a whole lot of them, but I think like Alex Esso in particular is Wendy Torrance does a good job. There is a sort of Jack Nicholson that appears in the film as well. won't say anything about okay, more of it, but it is obviously not. I, I'm not going to say anything else. I picked um, up Dr. But, Sleep a while back. I haven't watched it yet because I wanted to do a revisit on The Shining, which I now have done, no, and have. I, I want to watch Dr. Sleep. Andrew, I've never seen it. Do I watch theatrical or do I jump straight to the director's cut? Uh, sure. Andrew, I'm asking you to make a definitive decision. For I, I think if you could erase I would watch the, your brain and you experienced it for the first time, which one would you want to experience? Um, I think the theatrical tells the story perfectly well. Um, okay. I don't think the director's cut is bad. And I don't even necessarily think the extra scenes are are bad to see, but I think the theatrical on that one was pretty good. Um, it, the director's cut is twenty eight minutes longer. It That's all it was significant. significant. So. so I mean, I I don't I think you could go either, but like mm. I I I really don't think it matters. Okay. Um, in that regard, I would maybe go director's cut just because then you're getting everything. And there's no question at that point you're okay. seeing okay. the full. Intention. The only thing I would suggest, though, is that if you watch the director's cut, it's going to be like three hours long. Um, <laughs> it's a long movie. Um, it's, so in that regard, maybe do the theatrical. But um, but I just will say, I do like it a lot. Um, Rebecca Ferguson is very, very, very unsettling in it. Uh, Ian McGregor is great. A lot of great uh, performances. Uh, Carl Lumbly uh, does step in as Dick Halloran. Uh, does a pretty good job with that. Uh, they do manage a way to kind of find him into the story as well. Um, so there's a lot of great performances top to bottom. Um, I highly recommend it. Andrew, I feel like I say this at the end of like all of our months, but uh, I really enjoyed this theme, but this one in particular was pretty unique. I mean, we literally watched just some of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, Other than Mask of the Phantasm, I think these other three movies appear on most lists of top 100 films ever made. Kind of interesting we snuck this into our podcast. Get over it, people. We do what we want. (laughs) But look, technically, 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 they were poorly received upon release. But, um, you know what? What the hell? They're fun to talk about. This was a good time. They are. Uh, but Andrew, if this month was a high as far as objective quality of films we got to talk about, we are about to jump off that diving board with the, the theme we have for next month. March 2024, we are going to be talking about famous flops. Some of the 
not just biggest box office bombs, but the movie's legacy and reputation is about the money it didn't make. It is a very specific thing, and I'm excited to jump into this. Uh, we're going to be talking about... Chris, real quick, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is our 149th episode, which means that our next episode... The Shining. The Shining. It's 149. Yeah, the episode you're listening to right now, episode 149. Yes. We are about to hit... Which means our next episode is, I don't know if you guys can count, 150. Um, that's crazy. First of all, Andrew, that's crazy, dude. It's like 150 it really episodes plus bonuses. And we've been at this for a while. Uh, uh, I I'm glad we're still here. This is a lot of fun. Um, uh, yeah, 150 is next month. Uh, next week, excuse me. Uh, the month is famous flops. We're talking about Last Action Hero. We're talking about Showgirls. We're talking about Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. But next week, episode 150, it is maybe the most famous flop of all. Come back next week. To see what it is. We'll be talking about it. Breaking it down. Talking about the positives. It's been on our list for a long time. We started coming up with a spreadsheet of movies we're going to cover. Uh, this was this, is, this has been on there a long time. It's been a long time coming. Um, yeah. And we're, we're diving in next week, Andrew. Uh, off the diving board into the deep end, huh? Famous flop indeed. <laughs> uh, Andrew. Um, we got a review on of this podcast. Did we from Australia? So this was actually posted back in January. Forgive me for for not reading this sooner. I have to literally go to like the Australian uh, Apple Podcast page to see it. So as we've said many times, the podcast you leave a review for our podcast, we're gonna read it word for word on the episode. So if you want to hear your words coming out of mom. My mouth. I haven't said this in a while. Uh, that's how you can do it. Leave a review for the podcast. I will read it on the episode. Say whatever you want. Please leave us five stars. We appreciate that. But, uh, you know, whatever you feel in your heart. Just like Bammy Character Wheaties did. Bammy Character Wheaties. The review is called Unrelenting Optimism. Excellent podcast with a couple of friends who not only find the best in mediocre or poor movies, but actually make compelling arguments for the good in them. It's very easy to listen to, and there are some good laughs to be had. This podcast is fantastic, light entertainment that doesn't take itself too seriously. Bammy, thank you so much for those kind words. That is, I think, a great distillation of our podcast. Uh, I do take offense at you saying that we don't take it too seriously. I I take, listen, I take this very seriously. Every time I do a celebrity impression, I try to be spot on. Uh, every time I say the word gravitas, I try to convey the very essence of that word. But otherwise, I like what you're saying here, and I appreciate that you enjoy it. I hope you're still listening. This review's a few months old now, so I hope you're still hearing this. Sorry, it took me a while to get around to it. Uh, thanks for the review. Yeah, thank you. It's always nice to hear that, you know, people enjoy what we're doing. Um, just always nice to hear that, you know, the message that we're trying to put out there is being well-received by folks and uh, all over the world, apparently. So, even better. I'm. You know, 
we never could have imagined having this kind of following when we started doing this. Um, and I know it's obviously not, you know, we're not living like kings off of this podcast, but the following we have, we appreciate every single one of you guys. We're glad that you're here with us, and we're glad that you still enjoy what we do. I certainly enjoy uh, making it, Andrew. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I read a review. I should, I should do all the usual things we're doing on podcast, right? Hey, leave us a review, rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, hit that notification bell. Uh, what else? What else? Check out our store on T Public. You know, get a get a shirt with our logo on it, or a mug, or a cup. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing this every episode, but I'm very bad about doing these plugs. Follow us on social media. Uh, you know, all that good stuff that everyone says at the end of every podcast episode. Uh, just pretend I say it all the time. Uh, thank you. Uh, episode 149. What a milestone. Uh, next, episode 150. An even bigger one. I, I, I can't wait. I'm very excited. Can't wait for everyone to hear it. Join us next week. And until then, just remember that maybe not every movie is great. But all movies have greatness. Thank you to Mark Benavides for singing our theme song. Check him out on Instagram at NotThatMarkAnthony. And thanks to Mitch for the music. You can follow him on Twitter at I'm a Biggie Boy and check our show notes for the SoundCloud link. Check out our store on TeePublic for some Best of the Rest merch. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend because that is the only way that we grow. Follow us on social media at BOTRCast. Thank you.